Hi guys, a quick message. Inside the Groove, the Madonna Music Podcast has been nominated for a Queerty Award, the Queerties 2022, and now live. But I need you to vote. There's stiff competition from the Drag Race All-Stars, the Bald and the Beautiful, and heaps of other great queer podcasts. But oh, we need Madonna to win. We need to prove that Madonna and her music is still relevant in 2022. You can vote on each of your devices once a day, every day, up until February the 22nd. Just go to queerty.com forward slash queerties2022 and add your vote for Inside the Groove. Keep going back every day to vote and get on the forums, get on your socials, Instagram, Twitter, wherever, and tell other Madonna fans to vote for Inside the Groove at Queerties. Thank you so, so much. It's 2022, which marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's very first single, Everybody, in 1982. Last August, it was announced that her albums would be re-released with new versions curated by Madonna herself. What does that mean? Well, here on Inside the Groove, we're working through each of her albums one by one to tell the story of how they were recorded, written and produced, along with the iconic photography and graphic design. Erotica was Madonna's fifth studio album and was released internationally on 20th of October 1992. It was accompanied a day later by a photographic book called Sex, in which Madonna explored BDSM fantasies under the guise of her alter ego, Mistress Dita. These themes were also contained on many of the songs for Erotica, accompanied by traditional love songs and messages about safe sex in what many fans consider to be her finest work. This new direction was brave and bold, and it saw Madonna lose favour in parts of the United States, although she continued to be successful in the more permissive European countries as well as Down Under. That said, it was only a number two hit in the US and UK, but reached number one in France, Finland and Australia. The majority of the album was co-written and produced with dance DJ and remixer Shep Pettibone, who had produced Vogue in 1990, and was accompanied by a handful of more hip-hop and soul-tinged tracks produced with Andre Betts. In this first episode about the erotica era, I will be telling Shep's history, discussing the stunning artwork for the album, and paying particular attention to the record's final single, Rain. So, for now, sit back, relax. Your love's coming down as we go... Inside the Groove. Welcome back to Inside the Groove. It's another year and it's another era for Madonna, perhaps one of her most popular amongst her fans, especially those of us who witnessed it the first time around. But many who've come to Madonna since the early 90s are still fascinated by this period when we had an abundance of top quality songs, boundary pushing promo videos, seemingly endless photo shoots and magazine covers, an extremely raunchy coffee table book and movies, of course, and an accompanying world tour. However, it's also a time when Madonna almost went too far. 
She's always had her haters. People who said that she couldn't sing, that she had no talent, that she was coarse, vulgar, or that she used people to get where she wanted to be. We've lived through the Playboy scandal, the poison pens, as they were called, the non-stop swearing on Radio 1. But for the majority of young people out there, Madonna was a rebel with a course, an aspirational character for young girls and a beacon of guidance and hope for her many LGBT fans. But with Erotica and the accompanying sex book, she went too far, at least as far as some were concerned. They now had a tangible reason to dislike her, to vilify her, and to, well, to use modern parlance, they tried to cancel her. Thankfully, the quality of the work was undeniable, and coupled with some clever damage repair in the next era, Madonna survived, but not without losing a huge following in her home country. For me... Well, I was 22 and Erotica pushed all of my buttons. At first, I wasn't sure it was a much longer album than we'd previously had from Madonna. And I wasn't sure about some of the tracks. I still don't like Did You Do It. And as much as I like, you know, in fact, I love this life and the meaning behind its lyrics. I can't help but feel that Erotica wasn't as musically clever as the work that she did with Patrick Leonard. But 30 years later, I love it. I still listen to it regularly. The production? Well, it's very of its time. And Madonna's need to keep the album sort of sounding raw and underground has left us with some vocals that don't compare to what was to follow. But it was an incredibly exciting time to be a Madonna fan and for all those reasons I've already stated. If you want the full story of the production of Erotica, including the title track and the second single Deeper and Deeper, check out those two episodes of the podcast and also there's an interview with Tony Shimkin who co-wrote many of the tracks on the album and was also involved with the production on the Shep tracks. But there's still so much to discuss. In fact, there's more than enough for one episode. So this is just the first of a two-part feature on the Erotica era. Should that be Erotic Era? For this one, we'll focus on the story of Shep Pettibone, the main producer of the album. And also we'll talk about the fantastic artwork that accompanied the release. In the next episode, we're having sex. You've asked for it, you're going to get it. Me, Jonathan and Peter will be telling the story of the book which sat beside the album, as well as pointing the spotlight on another of the songs from that record. But all of this would not have happened without a huge development in Madonna's career. But first, I'm joined by Lucy O'Brien, who is the author of the fantastic book about Madonna, Like an Icon. Hello, Lucy. I'm keen to get your view on the period. Yes. And I want to get your opinion on where Madonna was at the time, because she was without a doubt the most famous person in the world in 1991, 1992. She was controversial, and she'd always been controversial, but I think the Blonde Ambition tour and Justify My Lover pushed that further. But the album, of course, came with the sex book, and that was quite a leap. And I think even, you know, as artistic as those images are, some of them, even today, you can't imagine an Ariana Grande doing some yeah. of those poses. What do you think led her to do something so outrageous? Something that she she will have known. I know she says that she was surprised, but she will have known that it would have upset a lot of people. Or do you think yeah. that was deliberate? I think it was deliberate. I've talked to people who know her and who've met her and said that, you know, she was genuinely into sex. And I was very struck when I was interviewing Doug Wimbish, who played on the Erotica album. I just want to read this quote out because I was so struck by it when he told me. He said this was her first record with her concept. She just freaked everybody out. She turned the system upside down for a moment and that gave her the access code to what she's doing now. 
And I thought that was a really interesting point of view. There he is, he's kind of played with Grandmaster Flash, he's sort of part of that whole New York hip-hop underground, but he saw her as one of them, you know, as someone who drew a lot of influences from the underground, who was really, truly was like that, quite saucy, quite earthy, and at heart creative and experimental. So she'd done these huge pop albums that had done huge numbers, and he reckons that this was her chance to do something really conceptual, first with the sex book, and then linking that right in with the album and creating a persona, this dominatrix Dita Parlo character, and kind of playing it out, playing it out visually in the videos and in the in the sex book and, and the, the sort of very risque erotica there and in the music. But there's also some very, very sweet songs. You've got songs like Rain. And yes, you've got songs yes. like even deeper and deeper is is a is a love song. So it's still a Madonna album at heart. Do you think oh. that's those? Do you think those big tunes get overlooked sometimes because of the controversy? I think they sometimes do. And you know, she's very canny in always keeping to the forefront of her mind the hit, not in a kind of empty, calculated way. But she's naturally someone who is really good at those hit melody lines. And I was very struck talking to, say, Nikki Harris and Donna Delory, who sang with her on Deeper and Deeper. And they both said she had her note right there. And by that point, they, the three of them had been working together for so long that they, they had a real seamless kind of call and response and a real fluidity to the way they were singing in a way that nicely matched that. It's a wonderful kind of house-inspired track. It's yeah. just a great party record as well. It is indeed. Thank you so much, Lucy. And I hope to have you back in a few weeks to discuss bedtime stories. So there are two main factors which gave us erotica and sex. They are the formation of Maverick, and I'll come to that later. And then there's Shep Pettibone, the man who had been remixing Madonna's tracks since the mid-late 80s, had co-written and produced Vogue, and had been responsible for the mixing on Immaculate Collection, not to forget Rescue Me. Shep's name is synonymous with pop and dance music from the mid-80s till the early 90s. He was predominantly a remixer, creating club-friendly versions of big hits that also had the ability to make the songs work well on the radio. In fact, he became known for the turnaround mix, as it was called. These were versions of songs which reignited interest in the song and became the definitive version. His mix of Something About You by Level 42 turned it into a hit, giving them a whole new lease of life, whilst his fantastic reworking of Madonna's Into the Groove became the version that she would adopt when performing live, as well as making it onto the Immaculate Collection. And we all know that when she heard his house mix of Express Yourself, she redubbed the video to have that version instead. But what can I tell you about this elusive character? Well, he retired from the music scene in the mid-90s and very rarely gives interviews, but there's still a few interesting facts to discover. Shep was born Robert Pettibone in New Jersey in 1959, and very little is known about him before the early 80s, but we can assume that he was perhaps a contemporary of Madonna's. He began making his own edits and remixes at home simply by cutting up tapes and overdubbing his own instrumentation with a crude system. But these remixes were good enough to come to the attention of DJ and radio personality Frankie Cocker, who in 1980 presented a highly influential show on the station WBLS. 
Frankie played some of Shep's home mixes, including Gwen McRae's Funky Sensation. This brought him to the attention of another DJ, Arthur Baker. Arthur would go on to have a huge success as a remixer and a producer, and you'll be familiar with some of those productions, including acts such as New Order, Beastie Boys, Pet Shop Boys, and one of the most influential records of all time, IOU by Freeze. Shep's mixes were popular and he made the switch to KISS FM where he would submit his master mixes as they became known. And by now he was officially remixing tracks for record companies at Shakedown Studios in New York. And by 1983, Salsa Records enlisted Shep to remix from their vault of 1970s disco classics. And this included the ballroom classic Love Break, Ooh I Love It by Salsoul Orchestra, a song familiar to many Madonna fans and all of you who have listened to the episode about Vogue. It would go on to form the basis of that track, supposedly. By now, Shep was becoming a name on the US dance scene, and if a DJ received a record that had Shep Pettibone Master Mix on it, it would definitely get a spin, perhaps even without being auditioned first. Shep worked on a wide range of songs, including Sharon Red's Can You Handle It? and, bizarrely, a song by 70s British glam rock band Slade called Slam the Hammer Down. But he started to get a more international following after he was enlisted by British synth-pop duo Pet Shop Boys to remix their song West End Girls, along with other singles from their debut album Please. He also produced some tracks that would end up being used as B-sides, plus an early version of their huge number one hit, Heart. By 1986, he was a pretty big name, along with the aforementioned Level 42 mixes. His version of Bad Boys by Miami Sound Machine became the definitive version played on the radio. And he was now working for a number of big British acts such as New Order, Bananarama, Arcadia and Five Star. And at the end of 1986, his version of Madonna's True Blue, known as The Colour Mix, took the song to a new radio-friendly level and a relationship was established. Shep was then involved in the You Can Dance project and would remix further songs from Madonna, including Causing a Commotion, Like a Prayer and, of course, Express Yourself. By now, his name was attached to very big names in the music scene, including Whitney Houston, Duran Duran, George Michael, Kim Wilde, Paula Abdul. And at the end of 1989, he wrote and produced Vogue with Madonna and also started producing work for British singer-songwriter Kathy Dennis, which brings us up to 1991. And by the summer, Madonna began filming the baseball movie A League of Their Own, directed by Penny Marshall, which was shot in Chicago from August to October. Shep visited Madonna on set with a tape of three songs he'd been working on, just instrumental demos at this stage. Madonna took them to listen to and a week later said she liked all of them and was happy to work on more tracks. The birth of erotica had begun. In total, Shep and Madonna made headway on around 15 tracks for Erotica, with Rain in the early batch, recorded at Shep's home studio in the autumn of 1991. What you're hearing now is a demo from 13th of November 1991, which is labelled as New Vocal, and was from a leaked cassette called The Rain Tapes, suggesting that this was, at the time, the name for the entire project. On 6th December that year, they produced another version labelled as Final Demo with New Harms, which sounds like this. Your 
That's sounding a lot more close to the recognisable album version, minus Donna and Nikki's backing vocals, of course. But work on the album would stall in the new year when a newly blonde Madonna embarked on her next project, The Sex Book. The details about sex, how it came about, and its production process will be covered in detail in the next episode. But what I can say now is that it was part of a new entertainment deal which Madonna had founded between herself, manager Freddie Deman, and music lawyer Ronnie Dashev. The name Maverick comes from Madonna, Veronica and Frederick, and it was formerly owned and operated by the Warner Music Group. And it included a record label, a film division, TV company, book publishing, music publishing, and also a Latin record division. By this time, Madonna was one of the most powerful people in the entertainment world, certainly as an artist, and she still is, and this effectively allowed her full creative control to do whatever she and her partners wanted. No longer was she bound by the rules of Sire Records, and with a 20% profit share on the music side, this put Madonna on a par with Michael Jackson. This newfound freedom was expressed by Madonna in her new projects. After all, no record company is likely to have enabled her to put out an album of BDSM photography or included songs with themes that included oral sex. That said, it probably wasn't in Madonna's original plan when she started recording with Shep. Despite the obvious success, Shep wasn't without his critics. Coming from a DJ background like Mark Kamen's and Jellybean before him, Madonna enjoyed the fact that he was connected to the music scene, but others weren't so kind. Speaking to the Chicago Tribune in 1991, Patrick Leonard said, I'm over the Madonna thing and sick of hearing about it. He even said, at some point, what she's doing crosses the line into sensationalism and it's not art or entertainment anymore. Presumably he's talking about the Blonde Ambition tour and the Justify My Love video. He was kind of unhappy with what happened with his records after he'd finished doing his work. He continues... I get into the heat of writing with her, and then at some point I realise, wow, this isn't my record. You wake up the next morning and hear a dance mix by someone you've never met. It's kind of shocking. I felt a little like Dorothy and Oz. Maybe I was a little naive. It's totally her right. It's her picture on the cover. But working with her, I learned the difference between what is my record and someone else's. Well, a few months later he spoke to Sound on Sound magazine, and he was even more direct, saying of Shep Pettibone, I think he's extremely overrated. When it's pointed out that Madonna chose to work with him, well, we all make mistakes. Pat and Madonna worked again together in 1994, and I'll remember in 1997 on tracks that ended up on the Ray of Light album, and again in 2004 on an entire musical. That never saw the light of the day, but it's safe to say that they repaired their relationship. However, the fact is that Madonna was now taking an even greater role as a producer than ever before. Also enlisting Andre Betts, who was the co-producer on Justify My Love, for a few songs on Erotica, including Where Life Begins and The Sublime Secret Garden. Here's a snippet of a demo of that song. I still believe after all, I still believe and I fall. You plant the seed and I'll watch it grow. I wonder when I'll start to show. I wonder if I'll ever know where my place is, where my I knew the color of my 
Working on the sex book meant that Madonna had to divide her time between the, that album and the book. So in between recording sessions, Shep and his assistant Tony Shimkin would work on the production, eventually transferring their home demos to the studio to record full versions of the songs. Though he insists that 98% of the vocals were recorded in his home. Here's a version of Bad Girl, which at the time featured guitar by Paul Pesco. Madonna was unhappy with the early mixes for the album and sent Shep back to the drawing board saying that it sounded too perfect and too glossy and if she'd wanted that sound she would have worked with Patrick Leonard. So Shep and Tony started again, this time ending up with the mixes that are more familiar to us today. Now, with the album tied with the book, the release was delayed until the October due to a six-month printing process for the luxurious publication. Now, I'm here with graphic designer Peter Falloon and fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price to discuss that amazing artwork. Peter, if I can come to you first, I think Erotica was the first time that the design had been entirely led by the CD version, which kind of had become the dominant format for music, if I'm right. I think it definitely made the difference with it being a a four CD package. But the other thing, I think we touched on it in the previous episode about the invention of Quark Express. This was where Photoshop was invented. So it was around 1990. The ability now to create layers of imagery. And it also meant that type became like an image. So previously you had to just use type the way that it came from the typesetter. So it was in individual sizes. This is the first time that you could actually make the type the hero. So throughout the booklet, you can actually see the way that the type's been handled, almost like it's an image. So the word erotica has been art directed to within an inch of its life. And I think it's actually been done three times across the whole package, this beautiful correlation. Even like the negative spaces that are able to be created, that wasn't possible until you were able to digitize the type. So it's using the, the layers in Photoshop, like screen and multiply that just do these incredible things. And there were two designers that really forefronted it. One of them is David Carson, who was a West Coast surfer type skateboard guy. And he did loads of stuff for like skate magazines and really edgy. And then the other guy who seemed to really get to grips with typography in the early 90s was um, Fabian Barron. And that's who Madonna worked on for this whole album, a few of the singles and the sex book. And his vision was just so amazing he was able to he's a triple threat he's an art director a typographer and a designer so he can do everything and when you see his work his body of work is just as phenomenal as madonna's is he'd had a background in editorial design so he'd just literally before he started on this job just redone harper's bazaar and it won every design award going because he completely revolutionized the way that fashion magazines looked and I would imagine there was a conversation where Donna was like, I will have a little bit of that. And a lot of his work is quite similar, but with Madonna, he made it grittier and edgier and less glossy. And I think that it captures the music, that sort of vinyl scratch. You can actually see that visually in the typography. So these layers and these textures and even being able to put an image within an image, there's a really interesting one on the inside of the CD package where it's like an image of the woman dancing 
but then inside is a face. To do something like that in a, a dark room would have been nigh on impossible. But in Photoshop, it's literally a set of layers and you're able to bring those two things out. I think it's a truly beautiful, I think it's the first time as a booklet, every single image and every piece of graphic is just as strong as the cover. And it's not just as strong, you've hit the nail on the head, that the music and the images really marry together for the first time, because we know that she recorded very cheaply because that's what she wanted. You know, she was in a ba basement with, with a rat when she did the stuff with Andre Betts, uh, you know, she told Shep to remix stuff because it sounded too glossy in West Coast. That's not what she wanted. So there's almost a pop-up feel to the, to the booklet in some respects, and it's there in the music as well. But there's something I want to ask, because it, it's the thing that bothers me. The, I, there's different erotica logos, as it were, or ways of writing. I quite like the serif font that's throughout the booklet. I'm not sure I like the spider-like curly writing that's on the front cover. From what I can work out, there's several names attached to different bits. I think Fabian's bits were the, the really clean, like he only uses these very thin serif fonts. So things like Bodoni and Didot. That's his look. And if you, if you have a look at more of his work, he very rarely strays from it. There's another name that's been put on a lot of the output at this time. And I'm not going to know if I say this right. Um, Suing Fatija. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been an illustrator who actually hand drew the erotica and the, the Madonna part. It's interesting. I think the way that the image works on that cover, it fills that space beautifully. And I also think <laughs> I'm thinking back to the era that we're coming from. This is when things like you're a trash were on telly and they used a very similar font. So it's, it was kind of in vogue at that time to my eye. Now I can see it's dated, but I think back then it really excited me because it was like a piece of like hand-drawn imagery. I feel certain that Madonna would have been presented with several options for the cover, yeah. for the typography and the, you know, which one do you like? By this time, obviously she's on Maverick, it's her own label. She will be making those decisions. I think it's also a little bit of crossover with the art direction that was in the book as well. So that handwritten feel, it may have just been wanting to get a little bit of that cross-pollination between the two projects that they, they did feel as if they sat, sat with one another. Talking of the book and the photography, over to you, Jonathan, because we're going to handle the book separately, but obviously it's hard to disentangle this from the book, sex, and obviously from the video of Erotica as well. But there's only two images, two clear images used on the album artwork. Um, what can you tell us about that? And obviously the, the work with Stephen that, you know, Madonna established. Mm, well, there is so much to say about this era, but a lot of it is contained in the book, as you say. So focusing just on the artwork of the record now, looking at it, I think you can really viscerally see that this is a turning point in her career. It's reflected in the artwork, a very super close photograph of Madonna's face, as you said, by Stephen Mizell. You know, it's stark, it's quite illustrative, simplistic in a way. It's nearly impossible to tell that it's actually Madonna, in fact. And I did wonder if that's what she wanted. You know, if you think about the opening track, Erotica, and the guises she takes through the book, she's taking on the role of Dita. And I wonder if there was some discussion around this where, in fact, it would be a way for her to select a cover photo that took her away from herself in the public eye because she's, you know, the world's biggest star at this point. So the original image from that front cover 
because it was a wider shot, in fact, that this is taken from, was one of the images taken as part of the sex book project on the beach in Miami. In the photo, she's got this huge, thick, blonde hair full of extensions, a bit like Barbarella, or I guess kind of how Pamela Anderson became throughout the 90s. And these photos were shot in colour. As we see in the front cover of Erotica, it is a very overexposed black and white with a blue tint. So they've really stripped it right back. In the original photo, Madonna's hands are covering her breasts so you actually see more of her body. And that photo was used for promotional posters for the album. And on the front cover of the Mylar cover of the book, there you can see the same image wider with uh, more skin texture and jawline. But here really, because it's so overprocessed, you really only get the, the main features, the shadow. The back cover is obviously the secondary main image that you see. And that's another black and white that's toned blue, which is a headshot of her engaging in some podophilia, which is sucking a toe. <laughs> and I think it's Tony Ward. I, I'm not sure if I'm right, but reading between the lines from what I can gather that that was one of the shots with him. This time the technique that's used as a kind of solarization, which was popularized in the early 20th century by Man Ray. And I actually love the simplicity of these black and white photographs. You know, I think they're incredibly striking. Inside the artwork, obviously it's mostly graphic and text as we just discussed, but there are some images taken from the sex book with Stephen. Looking at this time and thinking about this record, you know, this is the first one on Maverick, as you said. And so you have to wonder about the amount of creative control that she has now, which presumably is complete. And so it's in Madonna's hands now. She's, and she's returning again to this old friend, Stephen Mizell. In order to do a project like this, you obviously need to have a lot of trust in the photographer, mm -hmm. a huge amount of trust. And we looked at Stephen's work before with Like a Virgin in those eight years. Madonna's career, of course, has just grown and grown, but as has Stevens, you know, his star ascended just as much as Madonna's did, but in the fashion world. So by 1992 here, he's also at the top of his game. And there's an interview with Anna Wintour in which she speaks about Stevens' work, saying that he is the fashion photographer of the moment. And that was at the time which this was shot. I think what he's really great at is zeroing in on the sort of mixture of fashion and social commentary. You can see that in his editorial work, but obviously that's written all over the sex book, you know, as I'm sure you'll cover in other areas at this time, you know, a lot of the focus was on the AIDS epidemic and to release an album about sex was a really huge statement. And looking at this period also in her career, you know, we're six covers in roughly. And so it's interesting to look back over all of her artwork now to the point where we're at with erotica and see this female pop star that hasn't really fit the typical mold. You know, these aren't just a series of pretty, well-lit portraits. She has been quite experimental. My one thought with this though, with the inlay of the images, after having seen all of the bountiful, incredible photographs that they've taken for the whole project, I wish they'd used some more and some better ones. You know, there are some beautiful images in there and they've used these techniques that are used throughout the book, but there was so much more. And I think particularly knowing that they were going to use it for a CD, they could have played around a little bit more with imagery. Another really annoying graphic design thing, when you have more tracks on an album, you have more information to cram on. And she bloody loved a sample on this album. So <laughs> the, amount, the amount of copy that you would have to get, I think that's really annoying, but it actually dictated how many images you could mm. have. So the original was like, a, I think, an eight-fold um, sheet and it folded yeah. up back on itself 
I think one whole side is dedicated to the typography and like explaining what this sample comes from and who wrote this. So yes, yeah, it's, it's very text dense, which you legally have to have all of that or put it available somewhere. We didn't have the internet then. So yeah, I think it's a real shame because the imagery I think is more important than the actual um, song lyrics. It may have been a time that we didn't actually need to see the song lyrics and we could have enjoyed a few more of the images. So where the entire project for me falls apart is with the singles, because after the, the very first one, after Erotica, there is no consistency whatsoever. And they're not even using pictures from the correct period. I mean, I don't know how you, you both feel about that. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mess, but does it matter? No. You can say yes. <laughs> um, I, I think some of it's try, they try to stay on track. Like when I go through them all. Mm -hmm. I think the one consistency that they've tried to retain is Farron's use of die dot, which is the, the Madonna word. But other than that, it's a bit of a mishmash. So like, I think because over in the UK, we got, did we get fever before bad girl, but they had it the other way yeah. around in the U S so we've yeah. got a bad girl image on a fever single, which again is that bad connect. We've then got rain which is perfect synergy, but it's so late in the campaign that they've almost forgotten what the original artwork looked like. It's, it's hit and miss like the one for deeper and deeper. There's a complete throwback on the picture disc where they're using a beautiful image from the same, same photo shoot as holiday. And they completely forget the typography. And then on the main one, it's the um, awful scripty circus like font. And for a single as awesome and as cool as Deeper and Deeper, it feels like the worst image to have gone for and worst way to present to it. It doesn't connect in any way to the song. Oh, I love that cover of Deeper and Deeper. I mean, it being the second single, which is arguably the most radio friendly song, you know, you, you, maybe you would have thought they'd have a bit more consistency, but I, my sister had made a collage image in her room and that was one of the photographs in the collage. So I remember so clearly Madonna with the cigar. And it, as we get to further reading, it's one of my further reading shoots to look up, but I love that photo. And I think it really is you know, this embodiment of her in, in her gender bending kind of power stance, which I think goes well Ooh. with the song. I think the, the one good thing about this period is she was being photographed a lot. There are lots of different photo shoots uh, and, mm. and we get to see a lot of these in, in, in the artwork. And quite varied styles, both aesthetically in the photos and also her in, in only two years. She changes hair, style, everything so much, which I love to see. If being obsessed with Madonna's hair is a crime, then I am guilty as charged. Uh, guys, thank you so much, although don't go anywhere because I want you for sex. Hang on, because I will be recording with you for the next episode about that book. But back to Erotica, well, it gave us five singles, the album title track, Deeper and Deeper, Bad Girl, Fever, and of course Rain. Six singles if you include Bye Bye Baby, which got a release internationally and had remixes as well. So it is a fully qualified single. But Rain is effectively the final release from the album. And um, what a classic it was with that stunning video as well. Rain, 
It was released as a single at the beginning of August 1993, and this was approaching a year after the album's release, so the song did well to reach number 7 in the UK chart, number 14 in the US, although it did make it to number 2 in Canada. It came with a fresh-sounding remix for the single, and of course the stunning video directed by Mark Romanek, which was filmed May the 16th to 19th, 1993, at Santa Monica Airport. The video shows Madonna during a film shoot with Japanese composer Ryuchi Sakamoto playing the director alongside a Japanese film crew. Romanek told the LA Times that he came up with the basic idea of setting it in Tokyo and showing the film crew, saying that it was very zen, very stripped away. She was this accessible, vulnerable creature surrounded by the high-tech and the global. Now, talking of Madonna's hair earlier, some have queried whether this is the same wig that Madonna wore in the Open Your Heart video. Who knows? But what's interesting in this video is that it's one of the first times we see Madonna without her trademark mole, and with painted-in eyebrows having bleached and plucked them for the previous year. There you go, more Madonna hair facts. It premiered in the July ahead of the song's release and would end up winning Best Art Direction and Best Cinematography at the 1993 MTV Video Music Awards, where Madonna also debuted Bye Bye Baby as it would be seen in her Gertie show World Tour. As for the song, Madonna hasn't herself spoken a great deal about it, though promotional material at the time said it was her tribute to Karen Carpenter, one of her singing heroes. Well, here's the a cappella of the song. It's coming Rain Feel it on my fingertips Hear it on the window pane Your love's coming down like Rain Wash away my sorrow Take away my pain Your love's coming down like Rain. You can really hear the spill from Madonna's headphones. As we know, she would often record with a handheld mic, sometimes close to the engineer, or probably in this case, in Shep's own studio. And here's her George Harrison moment. Hope she got clearance. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I Interesting to hear the chops and changes there. And here's the spoken section. It's strange. I feel like I've known you before. And I want to understand you more and more and more. When I'm with you, I feel like a magical child. Everything's strange. Everything wild. And here's some more of the harmonies that we hear. I feel it. It's coming, your love's coming down like rain. I feel it, it's coming, your love's coming down like And then here's a section I don't think ends up in the final mix, or it's at least buried deep down. Your love is coming down, coming down like rain. Hear it on the window pane, it's coming down And finally, a little spoken piece that's found on the tape. I love this. Okay, go back and let's hear that. 
The B-side was a 10 minute plus dance track called Up Down Suite, which at the time sounded absolutely fantastic, a very on-trend sound. And it would be a few years after that that I would discover the true story about that song. Well, I'll be giving you that tale, along with a discussion about what the re-release of Erotica could include in part two of this podcast, which of course will also focus on the book Sex. If you've enjoyed this episode, well, head to insidethegroove.co.uk and check out the range of merchandise inspired by shapes, colours and all sorts of things that you'll find familiar, designed by the wonderful Peter Falloon. There's some great things there for the Madonna fan. You can also support the podcast in other ways, either with a one-off donation or by becoming a patron with a monthly donation, and that gives you extra content, including the next episode on sex in advance. And you'll also get some extra content as well. That's also found at Inside the Groove. Until the next time, take care.